All right. Well, let's proceed then to the book of Exodus. And I'll just uh, start by reading a, one single verse from Hebrews 8. It's talking about um, the priests in the tabernacle. And it says this, They, those priests in the tabernacle, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So, what is, what is the uh, tabernacle? What is uh, everything that, um, that God's commanding them there in the Old Covenant? It's about copies and shadows. Okay, so the idea is... There are these heavenly realities. And what is happening in the Old Covenant is that we're getting a copy or shadow of these heavenly realities in the Old Covenant. And this applies to everything in the Old Covenant. The priests, the... uh, you know, the tabernacle, the, the law itself, um, everything that you could think of, the, the king, um, the land, um, you know, the inheritance that they got, all of that is a copy and shadow of heavenly realities, okay? And then what's amazing is that in the new covenant, these actually come to earth so that the heavenly realities, we're not getting copies we're getting the real deal in the New Covenant. And so what we would expect then in the Old Covenant is what? When we read the Old Covenant and we encounter all kinds of details about you know, sacrifices and blood and altars and all that stuff, what should we expect that we're going to be seeing in all of these, these, these Old Testament realities? Um, I guess to, to refine the question a little bit, um, how should we... Uh, <laughs> in what way should the Old Covenant, um, should we expect it to be helping us, we who are living in the New? Yeah, I'm sorry. Bad question. I'll just, I'll just say it. I'll just say it. Um, all right. What we should expect, if these are the copies of the realities that we are now enjoying right now, is that we should expect that the Old Covenant should be telling us lots of important things about the New Covenant. But in a shadowy and copy kind of way. Right? Whenever you're making a copy on the copy machine, there's always elements in which doesn't quite perfectly capture what we're, what we're copying. Um, a shadow, you know, or like a you know, shadow of a human being um, on, a, on a sidewalk on a bright day, you get the outline, but you don't get lots of other things, right? Um, the, the color of their eyes, color of their hair, whatever. Uh, yeah. Well, is it because uh, 
we learn better if we have analogies, and the more analogies we have, the better we can yeah. understand something. Excellent. Yeah, what we're getting in all of this is, is analogies, um, types, shadows, copies. And so this shouldn't lead to a dismissive attitude towards the Old Covenant. That's what I'm, that's what, this is like kind of the big meta point of, of this entire class on Exodus, is I want you all to feel as though the entire Old Testament is profoundly relevant to you, a Christian living in the New Covenant, even while lots of it will seem very, very strange. Okay? So with that in, in view, let's look at um, Exodus 24. We're going to read the whole whole chapter here. Exodus 24. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, and behold, it said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord is like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so that last part there will uh, set us up for um, a narrative that will finally end in the uh, golden calf incident, chapter 32. Uh, But what we're focusing on today is um, chapter 24, and um, in this chapter, there are three parts that correspond to the three kind of groupings or categories or levels, both of the people of Israel 
and of the levels of holiness on the mountain. So, remember, I drew this diagram before, but, you know, here's the camp of Israel at the base of the mountain. Here's Mount Sinai. And so there's the foot of the mountain. There's sort of this middle part. And then there's the peak of the mountain. And notice with me, in verses 1 through 2, and then, let's see here, 9 down to 11, um, what does it tell us about who's allowed on the middle? Who's allowed in the middle? Yeah, Amber. Aaron's one of them. Yep. Others as well. Yeah, so we've got Aaron and Moses, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are the two oldest sons of Aaron. And then it says 70 elders of Israel. So we've got Moses, Aaron, his two sons, plus the 70 elders. Okay. Who's allowed on the peak? Moses alone. Just Moses. And then at the foot is the people. Okay. Now this is a new development because if you recall before um, in Exodus 19, um, only Moses was allowed past here. So now we're seeing that these guys are being allowed here um, onto the middle part of the mountain. And what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on each of these levels and what each level, uh, what happens at each level. Oh, thank you. Um, the people, it, what happens with them is described in verses 3 through 8. Um, verses 1 through 2 and 9 through 11 is the middle part. And then verses 12 to the end, 18, um, is talking about what happens with Moses on the peak. So let's start with the people here. And let's just see what happens in each of these um, things. And before we even get into this, let me just ask you, what, what's kind of the big idea of what's happening in this chapter? Did anybody pick up on that? Like, what, what are they doing? What's going on? Yeah, there's definitely like leaders being appointed here uh, and recognized. Good. Other thoughts? Look at particularly verse 3. You know, Moses tells them all the, the, word of the words of the Lord, all the rules, and the people say, all, that the words, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What, what's going on? He's creating a church. Yeah, did I see your hand back there? Yeah. Well, um, I also, they're making a covenant because the blood and all the burnt offerings. So whereas before nobody could go on the mountain except for Moses, mm -hmm. like now that the blood's been thrown on them and they're consecrated, now the, it seems like the 70 elders can go up to the mountain and be safe and actually see the Lord and not die. Yeah, great. Yeah, so there's a covenant that's being made. What were you going to add? Yeah, I was going to say the heading in my Bible says the covenant confirmed, but then when you point out verse 3, mm -hmm. it seems to me like almost like the terms of the covenant. So here's yeah. 
the rules and the people are essentially, I'm assuming are saying, yeah, we're going to follow those rules. That's right. That's right. Excellent. So remember, um, covenant, it's one of these Bible words, but um, in, in our common parlance, like just talking um, today, we have a very similar idea, which is a contract. Um, it's a solemn agreement where if you break the agreement, there are consequences, right? So when we enter a contract, what do we do in our culture? Well, usually we sign signatures and it has to be witnesses, right? Like there's um, usually a notary or somebody who's recognized by the state as like, okay, this person can certify that yes, this, did, this person did sign the signature right here, right? There's a public quality of what's going on. Right here, what's happening? The people in verse 3, they're committing themselves to the terms of the covenant. In other words, they're entering the covenant. So this is the ratification ceremony of the covenant. Do you know we have ratification ceremonies too? Every single wedding is a ratification ceremony. It's solemn vows being made in the presence of witnesses. And there's like, this is a big to-do because we recognize this is a really big commitment these two people are making, right? So let's think about what's going on here in light of that basic premise here. And let's just talk about verse 3 to begin with. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. What is the content of what he's telling them? What, is, what did he tell them? Obviously, all the, yes, the words of the Lord, all the rules. But what's it referring to? Would it... Okay, Ten Commandments. And what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say the Ten Commandments, the Sabbaths, um, the other, the, all the laws prior to that from like first, or chapter 20 up to that point. Great. Yeah, so as we're coming to this, right, in chapter 24, what's the immediate context of this? Well, what we've talked about for the last two Sundays, chapter 20 was the Ten Commandments, and then we talked about the case law, right? Basically, the end of chapter 20 through chapter 23. That's, that's all God telling them, here's what you're supposed to do. So God revealed these things to Moses on the mountain. Now, what's, what is Moses doing? He's coming down, and he's saying, here are all the things God said. He's laying out, here are all the things that God wants you to do. Okay. And it says, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What are they doing? Right? Creating a covenant. And what did they, like, what did they, what, what has happened as of this sentence? Like, what's different now after the sentence has been uttered? I'm, could you repeat? I just Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so my question is, the end of verse 3, when the people say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, as of that sentence, what is different now? Yeah, Logan? No, you go. I was going to say, uh, they're kind of vowing as well. They're confirming the covenant. Yeah, yeah. Now, they are personally obligated Like, this covenant has been given by God, and now they're committing themselves to keep it. So, like, when a married couple, again, the analogy, right? 
If they say I do to the questions, will you love this person, have this person um, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, until death do you part? When they say I do, they are now obligated to something that they weren't obligated to before. Same thing with um, when an elder or pastor or deacon takes their vows of ordination. And they say, I do. They are now publicly committed to keeping those things. So the very first thing we see is the people are committing to what God has spoken. They are now publicly bound to the law of God. Okay, what does God do next? Verse 4. He has Moses write down all the words of the Lord. Why is that important? What does writing imply? The fact that he wrote down the words. Lots of right answers to this, yeah. I would, I would just think that it's public and it's permanent and there's a record. There's a, I mean, there's just a permanent like, public record, exactly, which is going to be important for posterity, right? What, what are we as a people committed to? Well, read the thing that was written. Moses wrote it down. And just so you know, isn't it interesting, right? Verse 7, after he's written it down, it says he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Sort of like at the end of our congregational meeting where you sort of hear the whole, all the minutes read again, and you're like, yeah, that's what happened. That's what, that's what happened in our meeting, right? And now, having written it down and having heard what is written down, they're ratifying not just the spoken word, but now the written word and saying we are bound to Scripture. Right? Scripture has just been written. They are bound to the written word of the Lord. Not just the spoken word, but the written word of the Lord. Good. Okay. Um. Yeah, really interesting that later um, Moses is, going, is told by the Lord in verse 12 to come up here to me on the mountain and wait, here, wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So there's a copy that Moses writes and there's another copy that the Lord writes of what seems to be the same law. Um, interesting too that later, oh, by the way, um, a lot of times in Sunday school and stuff, you'll see like those Moses with those two tablets and like one will have like, you know, the first four commandments, the other will have the, you know, commandments five through 10. Don't think that's what's going on. Um, the two tablets are very likely the entire law code. In fact, that's what um, Deuteronomy 9.10 says, that basically um, Everything that Moses had spoken to them on the mountain. I'll just read that to you real quick. 9.10. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain. Out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And there are two tablets because there are two copies. Um, in other words, there's these, these copies of the law that um, are being stored 
Where? In front of the very ark of God, in the sanctuary of God, um, for public record of what God has committed to do and what his people have committed to do with him. Okay, so there's writing down, but then there's more. He rose early in the morning, end of, or second half of verse 4, built an altar and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Where is he doing this? At the foot of the mountain. And then it says, he sent the young man who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. So, burnt offerings and peace offerings. These will be further explained in Leviticus. But basically, burnt offerings... It's tricky to translate this word. Um, ESV chooses burnt offering. It's, it's fine. Um, but the whole idea is that these are entirely going up to the Lord. Entirely being burnt up to God. Um, Whereas peace offerings, hopefully you remember this from last week's sermon. This actually came up. There's a distinction here where a portion is for the priests and the people to eat with God. Right? Burnt offerings are atonement offerings, taking away sin. Peace offerings are celebratory offerings, saying now that sin's been atoned for, we're so glad we're in fellowship with God, we're now going to party. We're going to feast together in the presence of God. Well, what happens? Moses takes half of the blood and puts it in basins, and half of it he throws against the altar. And then we're like thinking to ourselves, wow, that sounds really gross, right? Um, what's going on here? And it's not just by the way that half of it is going to be in basins and the other half is on the altar. Look what happens to the other part of the blood. Um, the part that's in the basins. Verse 8, Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. So we've got sacrifices, and then blood on the altar and on the people. What on earth is going on? Why are they doing this? Well, um, do you notice how he says in verse 8, behold the blood? In other words, see it. Here it is. There's a public demonstration again, of what's happened. They have publicly committed to the law, and now there's a public sign on them and on the altar that is from the sacrifice, such that the blood isn't just shed, it's displayed. It's displayed publicly. Especially, it's displayed before the Lord himself. So that when the Lord sees the blood, remember what happened with the... uh, uh, you know, the, the Passover, and they, they take the blood, and they don't just kill the Passover lamb, right? They put the blood on the lintel, you know, the door, door frame. What's happening? The angel of death sees the blood, and what does he do? He passes over, right? So there's an idea of showing the blood, 
so that now having publicly displayed it, God will have mercy. And he does have mercy, as we'll see. So here are four things. Four aspects of covenant ratification. A covenant is being forged between God and the people. You could say, as the prophets do, um, Hosea, Ezekiel 16, um, Jeremiah 2, that Israel and God get married here in Exodus 24. God and Israel are now one, right? Covenantally one. Um, This is the I do of the wedding ceremony, the most important part. So, any questions on just sort of what's happening so far um, here? Because we're going to make some connections now based on this. Israel and um, God are now covenantally committed to each other. Yeah, Mike? Um, let's see. In, in uh, one of the, oh, verse 7, it talks about, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it. Is that yeah. a table? It, uh, I don't believe, tables. no, it is, I don't believe it's one of the tablets because that's um, going to be written with the finger of God. This is actually what Moses writes down. Um, on what material, we don't know. It could have been a tablet. Um, but uh, here, um, he's writing down, verse 4, the beginning, all the words of the Lord. Yeah. What, what's given on the mountain later seems to be a copy of this. Okay, let's think about now how all of these realities are copies and shadows of the new covenant. All right? So, number one, the people committing to the law. What does that correlate to in the new covenant? God speaks the words of covenant relationship how does, uh, how does commitment to God's covenant take shape in our present, present, present time? Uh, I, would it start with repentance, agreeing with yeah. what God has said about us? Yeah. First um, Thessalonians 1, uh, Paul says, um, when we spoke to you guys, um, you received it eagerly with repentance, turning from false idols to the living God, right? So they're hearing the words, and they're turning from their idols, just like Israel is here, and they're committing to God. Good. Other thoughts? Prior to that, we have the Lord Jesus himself coming as the second Israel, saying, you know, behold, I have come, I will do, I will do your will. Yeah. As exactly. the head of the church. Right? Exactly. Yeah, so in, what, what do we see with, with Jesus coming? Um, Hebrews 1 says, and it's the words of Jesus himself, that he is, uh, behold, I have come um, to do your will, O oh God. Where am I? Let's see it here. I know it's in here. Um, he, he says, I have come to do your will. 
So God, um, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, Jesus himself comes. What happens with these people and their commitment to the law? Do they keep it? No. Um, in fact, within 40 days, uh, Moses is going to come down the mountain and find them worshiping the golden calf. Direct violation of multiple commandments, right? So the people, their commitment to the law is fickle. And in fact, um, in a later text, Joshua 24, when he's renewing the covenant, and they say basically the same thing, we'll do everything that you've told us to do. Moses says, "Uh, you're not going to, and you're not able to. And the rest of Israel's story is showing that they can't. But what happens, Jesus comes, the true Israel, he commits to doing God's will, and it's even when it's put to the test in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, right? And he obeys even to the point of death on a cross, Philippians 2.9, and so shows himself to be the true covenant-keeping Israel. And so now we, in response to that, to pick up Mike's point, we repent of our sin, and in the power of Christ, we commit to the law, which is something we also do publicly, um, Remember Romans 10, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what we do when any time somebody becomes a member of a church, they are publicly stating, I will obey. In fact, the fifth membership vow at our church, this is just one way of you know, articulating this reality, says, do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? In other words, Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you'll serve him with all that's in you? Forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? When you say I do to that, you are doing the new covenant equivalent of Exodus 24, 3 and 7. Do you realize that? You are publicly committing yourself to the new covenant. Big deal. Really big deal. You are now in covenant with the Lord. Okay, so Jesus is the, the, the truly committed Israel, and we in him are able to make this commitment not falsely, um, not in a fickle way like the old Israel did, but truly committing to him. What about this? The writing down of the law. How does that take shape in the new covenant? What's the new covenant correlate to the writing down of the law? as part of covenant ratification? There's a couple right answers to this. Yeah, Dominic? The public confession of your faith. Okay. Yeah, so that would be the, more of the first one, right, where they're publicly confessing, um, right? But I'm talking about here like, when Moses writes down for posterity the commitment between God like, and his people. Would baptism fit into that? Yeah, baptism, I think we're going to see that that's going to connect a lot to this public demonstration of God's, um, God's covenant renewal with us, or covenant ratification, I should say, with us. Think about it, what's the purpose of writing down? One purpose is for posterity, yeah. I would, it, does it have anything to do with like the writing down of the New Testament, like the, the written down gospels and all the letters yeah. and everything that tell us? New things, new writings? Yeah, exactly. What, what I'm trying to get us to think about is that when the New Testament talks about it being written down, John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or later, 
1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When those things happen, we need to understand that the New Testament is covenant documents. These are the words that we are now bound to. It's um, Jude talks about the, the deposit of revelation once for all given to the saints. This is a deposit of revelation given in Exodus that for posterity, the entire old covenant people of God, Israel, is bound to. What is that deposit of revelation written down for time immemorial for the rest of this new covenant age? The New Testament. In fact, the word testament, which we're, we're so used to hearing these words, Old Testament, New Testament, you may forget that testament is an old word for covenant. It's just an old English word for covenant. So the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, all those books, the, the 27 books of the New Testament, are in fact the 27 covenant documents which are written down for us to be bound by. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say in uh, Jeremiah 31, it says the law will be written in our hearts as well. Yeah, excellent. So this is the other awesome fulfillment of this. How, where was the Old Covenant written down? On tablets, on tablets of stone. However, what, whatever Moses wrote on here uh, doesn't matter. It's written on some physical medium, right? What is the New Covenant? The New Covenant is going to be even better because of where it's written, Jeremiah is saying in chapter 31, you know, this old covenant that you all broke, it was written on tablets of stone, but look, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's that covenant formula, right? They will be my people, I will be their God. Covenant has been ratified, but it's going to be after what kind of writing? A writing on the heart. And this is an allusion back to Jeremiah 17, which talked about how the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So their sin is deeply engraved in their hearts. Well, guess what? God's going to do a better, a better writing within us. He's going to write his law on our hearts. And 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, This has come to pass. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So again, we have a copy and a shadow. The shadow being that the covenant was written down, the reality being that it's written in our hearts. That's what it's pointing to. Okay. Um, let's talk about the sacrifices. That's pretty straightforward. We've been talking about this a lot um, with Jesus um, being the ultimate sacrifice in the book of Hebrews, as we've been hearing over the past year. But let me just add this extra nuance. What was the nature of this sacrifice and this blood? It was the initial sacrifice that inaugurated the covenant, right? Because this sacrifice was made, the people could be in covenant with God. 
Think about that when I read this. Matthew 26, 28. As Jesus is holding the cup at the Last Supper, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Or think about this, Luke twenty two twenty. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Hebrews 9, 18 talks about even the first covenant was, was inaugurated with blood. What we should see in Jesus dying on the cross is very particularly a fulfillment of this covenant inauguration sacrifice. The sacrifice that was done on this day at the foot of Mount Sinai that initiates God's covenant relationship with his people. Jesus in his death on the cross fulfills that. Pretty amazing, right? Like we who are unholy are now made holy through this sacrifice. And not only that, but the blood needs to be on us if we're going to make it um, into God's presence. So the sprinkling of the blood uh, on the altar, on the people, the public demonstration of it. Have you had blood sprinkled on you? Has anybody of you had ritual bloods uh, sprinkled on you? <laughs> kind of a challenging question. I, I hope uh, not from any... Uh, um, evil practice. Um, but from, think about this. First Peter 1, 2 says, every single one of you have had blood sprinkled on you. You are those who, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, are called for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You all, are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. When did that happen? When did you get sprinkled with the blood of Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Baptism is what seals that reality to us. Of course, anytime anybody believes in Christ and the blood of, that Jesus has shed is then applied to them and they're forgiven, right? That's the, that's the inner cleansing um, of our souls by the Spirit. We could say at that point, we have been cleansed with the blood. The blood has been sprinkled on us, publicly put upon us. But again, for it to truly be public, there needs to be a public sign. And so the public sign of God's cleansing of us is baptism. And this is part of what, by the way, why we don't believe it is in any way wrong to have water sprinkled on you. Um, there's lots of legitimate modes for baptism, um, some Christians will say the only right way to be baptized is by being immersed. Okay, that's one way to be baptized. But is it the only way? Especially when baptism pictures for us the sprinkling of Christ's blood upon us and thereby our covenant inauguration. Surely that also is a legitimate um, mode of baptism. So again, all I'm trying to show you is when you understand the old covenant and you understand what God did here at the foot of Sinai in Exodus 24, you understand so much more about who you are now in Jesus Christ and why like the New Testament talks about all this. Like, this is my blood of the covenant. What does that mean? Well, the 
blood that inaugurates the covenant. Exodus 24, right? Or for sprinkling with his blood. Sprinkling with his blood. Why on earth would that? We need that. <laughs> well, read Exodus 24 and you'll find out why. Any questions about these things? About uh, the shadowy realities of God initiating and inaugurating and ratifying this covenant? And then how they are getting fulfilled? I'm hoping that some of the weirdness of the Old Testament will start to, you know, go away, and you'll start to realize, wow, this is actually profoundly important for me. Yeah, Donna. It seems that the order is slightly different in the New Testament than the Old Testament because it's okay. already written. Christ has already been sacrificed, whereas in the Old Testament, they were first told, they agreed, then they wrote it down, yeah, then they sacrificed. Where for us, Christ has already died. Yeah, the New Testament then was written. And, and then we come to believe from what we've learned from the New Testament. So the order yeah, is kind of like, point. like they say um, it's like a mirror image. Like mm-hmm. we're, we see dimly lit and then we yeah. see clearly. Yeah. Um, like maybe it's reversed. Yeah, good. So, so that, that analogy of like a dimly lit room is what the old covenant is. And then when Jesus comes, it's like the light, lights are flipped on. We can see clearly. I think that's a good analogy. And and you're pointing out that, like, in the order here, um, there's different order in the New Covenant on a number of these things. I think that's a legitimate point. Um, and, yeah, again, there, there's going to be some elements of newness or discontinuity here. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me, both as you've gone through it and as you started, of God as master, storyteller, and yeah. author. And yeah. The foreshadowing of Christ from the beginning. So, like in Genesis three, um, the seed of the woman, and then just all throughout um, the Old Testament. And then also, I believe it's in Proverbs, the scripture that says, "It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out." Yeah. So those things are there. That's right. And and as we seek. God and seek him in his word, you know, we can discover these things and, and yeah. see Christ in ways that perhaps we've, we've never realized before. Yeah. I mean, who as a kid didn't love, you know, going on a scavenger hunt or, um, you know, a treasure hunt, right? Like that's the joy of reading through the old Testament is like, there are treasures. Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ are here for us just waiting for us to discover them, right? Like, what if we read the Old Testament expecting to find the treasures of Jesus? One of the things that's helped me with regard to, I think, Dominic's point is, I don't remember when this hit me, but it was it was some time ago, but it really helped me understand kind of what the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, that the first sacrifice comes in Genesis, Right, God makes the promise, yeah. which refers to Jesus, mm-hmm. and then He makes a sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve. Yeah, and every subsequent skins? sacrifice yeah. is a copy of that first sacrifice that God made, mm. and yeah. it's like every subsequent sacrifice is a bloody footprint of Christ leading mm. to the cross. Yeah, and so even in the Old Testament, we have the priority of God's grace. I will do this. Yep, this is my thing. And then all the sacrifices. Yeah, well that. done. Yeah, well yeah. said. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think it's so important that we give God the priority, just like you said, because otherwise, um, again, it's the whole idea of copies, right? Is this the, the, the real ultimate sacrifice? No, it's a copy. 
but it's still a good copy, right? It's a God-ordained copy that shows us his awesomeness and excellence. Yeah, Anna? I wondered if you were going to make any other, any kind of a point regarding the burnt offerings being entirely burnt up and the peace offering that, that ends up with a sort of a celebration yeah. as related to Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, but what were you thinking about, like, well, the way you're laying it out? I, I guess my thought was, like, the burnt offering might be more indicative of his sacrifice on the cross mm. because it was done. It was done entirely. It was complete. Yes. Um, and then maybe the peace offering is more indicative of uh, what we have to look forward to in the new heaven and the new earth and the celebration coming. Yeah, and that, that's, that's what I was also getting at with um, kind of the amazing thing in Hebrews where he says, over and over again, Jesus is making this sacrifice once for all. It's an unrepeatable sacrifice, right? As opposed to these burnt offerings that are made over and over again. And then at the end, like the passage we heard last time, uh, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, he starts talking about these sacrifices that we're doing over and over again. The sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of service, Right? What's going on? He's saying he wants us to be making these sacrifices continually. And we're hearing like, wait a second. I thought it was like Jesus once for all. It is Jesus once for all in the atonement. But then these peace offerings, this idea that we're celebrating fellowship with God. These are things that we're doing even in our daily lives as we're offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, right? Um, offerings holy and acceptable to God, First Peter 2. Um, so yeah, the, the kind of the richness of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the fact that there wasn't just one offering, sets us up to, to understand these realities today. There's one more thing I really want to make sure we get to in the last five minutes, and it's what happens in um, number uh, verses 9 through 10, or 9 through 11. Yeah, 9 through 11. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders, they go up. And then this is kind of amazing stuff. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He, that is, the Lord, did not lay his hand. In other words, kill the chief men of the people of Israel. In fact, they actually beheld God and ate, and drank. So, why would, he, why would he say he didn't lay hands on them? Why, why, would there, why would there need to be that kind of clarification? They've just beheld God. I, I'm only having faint memories of things, but I, I believe, this is a scripture say somewhere like you, you can't behold God and live. That's right. Um, yeah. And and just in general, I think of man being in God's presence. I mean, it just just seems like you would you yeah would die. You would be undone. And that verse, uh, you can't behold God and live. That's actually Exodus thirty three twenty. God says, "You cannot see my face." This is Him talking to Moses. For man shall not see me and live. Right. And then when people see God, what happens? They're amazed that they survived. Genesis 32.30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
Judges 13.22, Manoah, the father of Samson, says to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Isaiah 6.5, Isaiah sees the Lord and says, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you see God, the expectation is you will die. Why did they not die? The effectiveness of the sacrifice, the effectiveness of the blood. They were made worthy by God making them worthy uh, through his blood on, on them. Now, this whole idea of seeing God is an extraordinary thing, right? Because we have this verse that says they beheld God, but then we have John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one ever has seen nor can see. Hold on one second. So when you hear both of those things, if you're tracking with me, you might think to yourself the way a lot of unbelievers or critics would say, oh, you know, the Bible just hopelessly contradictory, right? They beheld God. First John, John 1.18, no one's ever seen God. What? How can both be true? And yet when we come to the scripture, not from above, judging it, but from below, as those who are under the scriptures, we have an entirely different attitude. Our attitude is, these things go together. How do they go together? God knows what he's talking about. <clears throat> or is, is there information in the text that enables us to put these pieces together. And since time is practically out, I'll just offer a few things. First is, it's striking, right? That when it says they see God, it says there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. What are they, what are they seeing? They're seeing into heaven, and they're seeing this pavement, which, by the way, I think is sort of the heavenly half of what's called the firmament. Um, Ezekiel 10.1 talks about this um, sapphire, in other words, blue um, uh, expanse that is in the heavens. So just as we have above us the blue sky, um, God has below him the blue pavement because he is in heaven above and we are on the earth below, right? And what, what are they seeing? They're just seeing his feet, same thing with um, Israel, um, Moses seeing the back. You can see my back. You cannot see my face, for no one shall see my face and live. So what are they seeing? Are they seeing the essence of God? Are they seeing the fullness of God? No. They're seeing him as he's allowing them to see him, an aspect of him, of, of, of an appearance of him. Um, St. Ambrose said back in the fourth century, it is not in our power to see him, but it is in his power to appear to us. So we can behold what God allows us to see, and in that sense we could say we are seeing God. We're not seeing him in all his fullness. Fast forward now to the New Testament. What does it say? It says about Jesus, Colossians 1:15, that he is the image of the invisible God. That to see Jesus is to see the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God that is the Son, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 14, 9, 
9, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. You think about these guys and you're like, whoa, they got to see God. You should be saying to yourself, I have an even better vision of God. I get to know Jesus Christ. And one day I'll get to see him. And in seeing him, I will have a vision that will far surpass what Moses, Aaron, his two sons, and the 70 elders ever saw. So again, old covenant shadow, new covenant reality, always better. And so even as we're like, whoa, they got a really great privilege right there, we should be saying to ourselves, and we're even more privileged because of what we have and the absolutely stunning revelation of God in Jesus. I wish I had more time to talk. We're going to have to close it out there, but let's give thanks for these things. Lord, we thank you for all that this passage shows us about being in covenant with God. It is a public thing, a solemn thing. It requires solemn commitment on our part. And yet, Lord, it is such a gracious thing. Here you are providing the sacrifice, providing a way for us, sprinkled with blood, to enter into your presence worthily. And Lord, we even think of those peace offerings and the fact that those 70 elders and and the others were able to feast on the mountain in God's presence, to eat a meal in the presence of God and not be killed. And instead to enjoy your fellowship, to enjoy the fellowship of the holy God, and even to behold you after a fashion. Lord, we are in awe of this. We're in awe of the copy And how much more then are we in awe of the reality that we now enjoy thanks to Jesus? Lord, we are amazed that we get even better things than what Israel enjoyed this day at the foot of Mount Sinai. We get the ultimate end times realities that we'll be enjoying forever and ever, even today on the Lord's day as we enter your presence together. Lord, give us thankful hearts for these things. Help us to really hunger to know you in all the scriptures, including the Old Testament, and help us to love you as people in covenant with you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks everybody.